represents sin. There are times when leavening represents righteousness. Uh, I found a scripture on that not too long ago, and I can't remember for the moment right exactly where it is. But it depends on the time of year and what you're talking about. Now, if it's a wrong attitude such as the Pharisees had, then leavening represents sin at any time, I suppose. But the preponderance of the scriptures about Christ represents someone, as in Isaiah 53, who didn't answer back, who remained quiet like a lamb. And uh, a wolf can attack a lamb, and it'll just stand there and let, you chew, let the wolf chew on it until it dies. A goat will fight back. So in terms of his uh, trial, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm getting old. Uh, his trial and his uh, torturing is the word I was after in his death, he stood like a lamb and did not answer back, didn't fight back. So certainly like a lamb in that case. There are times when we're admonished to be like the goats, as in Jeremiah 50, where it says, Be as the he-goats and lead the people out of Babylon. So for the most part, goats are looked down upon in Scripture, uh, and sheep are raised because of the lack of pride and vanity, whereas a goat tends to butt and push and have a different attitude than a sheep by far. So the whole preponderance of the Scripture indicates Christ is a lamb, as, as Neil pointed out, and I wanted to verify that a little bit. Um, and he had not yet come either at the time that it said perhaps a lamb or a goat. I just feel a lot more comfortable if we were going to sacrifice to use a lamb because it represents the attitudes that Christ had as our lamb. So, didn't mean to re-preach the sermonette, but uh, just a couple of thoughts that I had there. It's interesting to study goats and to study lambs. And you do get a different picture in the Bible when you make an entire study of both. <coughs> well, two weeks ago, for a brief review, we'll start into the sermon here, uh, if you're taping there. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about how we will be judged exactly as we judge others. And what measure we meted out, it will be meted to us. And used quite a few very plain scriptures to show that our judgments with others will be exactly how God judges us. No equivocation, that's just the way that it is. And it makes us pause and think a little bit, perhaps, before we do not forgive or before we... Uh, express an opinion about someone because we know that we're going to get the same kind of judgment from God. And it should alter our view a great deal on how we deal with others. And we do have within the churches of God today a great climate of put down, or my answer is better than your answer, or I'm a Philadelphian, you're a Laodicean, or however it might be expressed. There are many, many ways that we find as human beings to not forgive or to turn away or to push aside other people. And we might be pushed aside and turned from in the same way by God if the scripture is true. And those scriptures we read certainly are true. And then last week, I went into quite a few scriptures about the incredible mercies of God himself, showing his attitude and therefore for the pattern that we should follow in our dealings with him and with each other. So today, with that background, <clears throat> I wanted to go into an adjunct of mercy. And the word for today is patience. Um, 
the two go hand in hand. They're intertwined. And, and you really cannot separate them. But it's one thing to say, I forgive you. It's another thing to have an attitude of patience toward that person or toward any person thenceforth. Uh, if the forgiveness and the mercy is shown with the right attitude, then it should be followed with an attitude of patience. And we'll see that very clearly in the scriptures today. Now let's start with God himself and go back to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. And here I want verse 6. Exodus 34 and verse 6. And the eternal passed before him, or by before him, and proclaimed, The eternal, the eternal God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, or patient, is another, is a synonym for long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. It's interesting the order in which he puts this, merciful and gracious come first and then patient afterward and that's the order that I want to uh, continue in the sermon today we've already talked about mercy and the graciousness of God in respect to mercy uh, graciousness I, I didn't go to this scripture uh, in the last couple of weeks but it's, it's interesting how it fits that with mercy comes graciousness it's not a matter of I will forgive you you rat uh, be forgiven and therefore I'm clear I can be forgiven from God but I still despise you and what you think and how you are so the mercifulness has to come and be accompanied by graciousness an attitude toward that person and then we extend patience for future problems and well patience goes well way beyond that we'll, we'll get into it more let's go to Numbers 14 Numbers 14 and here I want verse 18 the eternal is long-suffering or patient and of great mercy so the two are linked here together forgiving iniquity and transgression and by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation so even though he is very patient and merciful and forgiving uh, still the guilty have punishment in other words there is not absolute grace for any and everything now, the Protestants would love to think that there is that once saved always saved and whatever you've done and whatever you're about to do won't matter because God will simply forgive but as we saw before, his forgiveness is contingent. Everything that God promises us in the pages of this book about anything is always contingent upon us. He never gives us carte blanche forgiveness for any and everything. He never gives us extended and uh, uninterrupted grace because when we sin, we fall from that state of grace to one of having to be punished he always reserves that to himself he says you can be good all your life there in Ezekiel 33 and if you deny that and turn from it as many in God's church are doing today that then you will be punished that all the good that you did will not be remembered because you turned from the good and turned to the bad 
and vice versa. If you've been bad all your life and repent, then you're forgiven for all that happened in your past. So there are always contingencies. We cannot get away from that. God is very willing to extend mercy and forgiveness and patience to us, but it is always contingent upon our attitudes, and as we saw, it's contingent upon our attitudes toward others. If we do not forgive, he does not forgive. If we forgive, he forgives us. Couldn't be any plainer than that in the Sermon on the Mount. So God himself is willing to extend it, contingent upon our repentance, our obedience, service to him. Uh, Let's go to James 5 now. James 5. Here he's talking about the conditions in the world, and as we see today in the church as well. Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. And misery, uh, let's say cause and effect, is happening today in the world. And the trouble that is about to come on the world and that is in the world today is there as a result of cause and effect. Do you think the problems in the Middle East just sort of happened or was there cause and effect there? I get, I say tickled at, that's the wrong word I guess. I get dismayed by a lot of news reporters who talk about those problems as if they only go back to 1967 or 1953 or something. And some of them will even, once in a while, one with a real brilliant insight will talk about how it's gone on for hundreds of years. And yet it's been there for thousands of years. And we know exactly where it started with an argument between family members. That should fit in somewhere in this sermon series that I'm doing about mercy and forgiveness and patience with one another. If you think back to those brothers and the problems they had in families with multiple wives and uh, and children that were half-brothers and half-sisters and so on, and how Ishmael, who became the Arabs, was a wild ass of a man, and how birthrights were almost stolen, bought, but stolen really because of the deceit that was involved. And these problems go all the way back there, and there's been no forgiveness ever since. They're still fighting and warring over a little strip of ground over there. And really, it's just an argument between brothers in the same family who cannot get along and have not for now 4,000 years. Those problems simply have to be solved. And they will be. And in the millennium, all those peoples will dwell together happily and lovingly. Boy, there's got to be some attitude adjustment in the meantime. Oh, those are pretty entrenched attitudes over there at this point in time. But God has the solutions, but they are going to be very, very painful solutions. And you and I go through trials and tribulation in our lives and trials among ourselves, between ourselves. And we have to learn some pretty painful lessons sometimes, don't we? and how to get along with one another. And that's really the basis of what this is all about, is learning to love the Father and the Son and to love each other. I mean, Christ boiled that down there in John 13, 14, 15, very clearly. And then we'll know that we are his disciples if we have love one to another, and 
patience and mercy and forgiveness and kindness with one another because we are here to be melded into a family. And I think it's interesting. Now, you on the telephone took up are going to have to bear with me at times. I recognize that I'm talking to a much wider audience and ultimately by tape around the world to a lot of people. But some of the things I say uh, probably will have, in, what, in one sense, more to do with the group sitting right here in front of me than those out there scattered. But these who are here today have been in very small groups around the country, or alone almost, in some, in some cases all totally alone, and now many have moved here, and we're finding suddenly that we're still human. Amazing. We thought we loved everybody. I mean, we were out there, and we didn't have any bone to pick with anyone. They weren't stepping on our toes. And suddenly we get in a little group, and toes are there. And if the room is small, it gets stepped on. So, you know, you it's, it's one thing dealing with one or two other people, or five or six. It's another thing dealing with 60 or 70. And uh, maybe we need to hearken back to a time in the not-so-distant past when we had congregations of two and three and four and five and six hundred around the country and had to learn to get along. And then we became more independent and everyone leaned to his own understanding. And uh, somehow, it seems, we kind of forgot the principles that are required to get along one with another. So we have to review some of those things and we have to come to understand what it takes. It's fairly easy to get along with yourself. It's fairly difficult to get along with your husband or your wife. <laughs> you know, and then it's even more difficult to get along with uh, a group of people that you hardly know. You know. It's one thing to come to a Feast of Tabernacles and there for eight days we can say, oh, you know, it's good to see you. It is. And it is. And it's wonderful. But if we put our foot too often on our neighbor's step, then he might not be so happy to see us as he would have been if he only saw us once a year and it was easy to say, hi, you look good, I love you, bye. Uh, now we've got to live with each other. We've got to be family. God expects us to be family with he and his son and with each other throughout all eternity. And building a family does not come easy. Many, many Bible examples show that. You go back into the Old Testament and start reading about the families there and the difficulties they had. And it, you can see very quickly that becoming a family, being melded together as a cohesive unit, does not come easy. It comes with trial, trouble, tribulation, difficulties, hurt feelings. Uh, we see examples in the Bible that God put there on purpose to show what happens if that forgiveness is not extended. And the Middle East is a good example of that today. And how the lack of mercy, forgiveness, and patience one with another has led to thousands of years of conflict. <laughs> and it's almost comical. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll send our negotiators over there and we'll solve this problem here this week. <laughs> how ludicrous can you get? You, you, yeah, they might can salve it over a little bit for a week or two or a year or two or three or five, possibly. 
But one of these days it's going to break out into absolute war and there won't be any stopping it until Christ puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. That is where he's coming back, by the way, despite what the journal said about what I said. <laughs> Oops, I'm not being as I am. I better shut up. Uh, we do get misquoted and people think they hear things that they didn't hear. But uh, where did that come from? He is coming back to the Mount of Olives. And the, the conflict is going to last until that happens. Somewhere they have to learn mercy. And most of it is going to come through death and resurrection and the second resurrection. That's where most of it's going to come. And those few who survive will have gone through such trauma that they'll finally be ready to listen. What an incredible blessing, brethren, that we have a chance to listen today. And the only trauma we have to deal with is a few little hurt feelings among ourselves. What a wonderful blessing that is. It's easy to think, well, you know, so-and-so said such and such about me, and, uh, and think that that's not a blessing. But by comparison, that's an incredible blessing. Sure beats the tribulation all to pieces. And if we can learn the lessons ahead of time, then we'll be way, way, way ahead of everyone else. And we'll receive the blessings of God ahead of time as well. That story has become very, very clear in the Old Testament as well as the New. That his faithful remnant is going to receive blessing even before he returns, whether in a place of safety or just prior to it. Anyway, I was starting into James, wasn't I? Uh, let's go on down to verse 6 talking about people who have had their own self-will gone their own way done the things of this world we don't need to review all of that at the moment because that isn't the point but verse 6 he says you have condemned and killed the just and he does not resist you God allows this to go on and he says be patient therefore brethren unto the coming of the eternal. Be patient until then. Now, patience is, is a very, very difficult thing. Well, we've got little expressions around, like, God, give me patience. Now, uh, an old joke, but, but it's true. And that's one reason it keeps recirculating, is because it is true. We want it, and we want it now, whatever it is that we want. People tend to be pretty much now people. Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the eternal. Behold, the husband waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. That's one thing if you're a, in agriculture or you're a farmer. You learn patience. It just simply takes time for corn to grow. You can think you're out listening to it grow, but it doesn't grow that fast. And you have to wait for rain. You have to pray for rain. You have to ask. And we are the same way in our relationship with God. He talks about the former and the latter rains coming upon us in great blessing. And he's talking spiritual and probably as well physical about that in the prophecies. But we simply have to wait. Now let's turn that around a minute. He is the one who planted the crop here, isn't he? Are we not the fruit of his planting? And look how patient he's been with us for 6,000 years. He's waited, and he's waited, and he's waited. How many? 
have been faithful to God. How many have obeyed God in all of this time? He's going to select 144,000. That's it. Those are the first fruits. No more, no less. Out of, what, 50, 60 billion people that have lived on the earth? Now that's patience, isn't it? To wait that long for that many to be faithful to him. And you can go through and read about some of those who were faithful, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and and uh, the various ones of the Old Testament whose sins and problems are listed for us. So even among those who were faithful, it was barely, wasn't it? Just by the skin of their teeth, God judged them righteous. What does he say? If the righteous scarcely be saved? So none of us are paragons of virtue and righteousness by nature. And he even says in Isaiah 54, their righteousness is of me. Because all our righteousness is filthy rags. So he has been long patient. So he says in verse 8, Be you also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the eternal draws near. James wrote this about 2,000 years ago, and it was drawing near for them as they aged in the church, and then the church fell apart, even if it's falling apart today with apostasy and false doctrine. And being blown apart because of Laodiceanism, God is spewing us out of his mouth. And it should be obvious now, but very few seem to understand that. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge stands before the door. So he's really repeating here the principle of the Sermon on the Mount. Be careful how you judge, lest you be condemned. Your judgment is based on your judgment of others. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Eternal for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. How much did Ezekiel have to be patient lying on his side? How much did Isaiah have to be patient wandering around naked in public? <laughs> you know, those, those guys had to do some things we haven't been called on to do and probably won't. But that took a lot of patience. You know, what are you trying to tell me, God? <laughs> what are you trying to show here? I'm, can I at least use cow dung instead of human dung to cook my food on? Well, okay. But he patiently did that. And Isaiah must have wondered, you know, as he wondered, why, God, do I have to run around naked? And then Daniel saw all these incredible dreams, and, and God says, be patient, Daniel, just shut it up. It's not for you to understand. Wouldn't that be frustrating if God gave you a dream and showed you all these kingdoms and kings and all these things that were going to happen? And he said, just put it out of your mind. Don't worry about it. It's sealed up. What would your reaction be? What would my reaction be? Tell me! <laughs> Tell me now! What is it you have in mind? No, Daniel, just seal the book. What about John and the Revelation? Man! All the things he saw. And it was confusing to him. He didn't get it. That one wasn't even sealed and we have trouble understanding it. He said, just be patient. He goes on about the prophets in verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the purpose or the end of the eternal. 
Now there's a man who is an incredible example of patience. His wife, not his wife, she was still there to rattle at him. His children were wiped out. His wealth was wiped out. He had friends, so-called, and his wife to tell him, curse God and die. There's, there's some real <laughs> sympathy for you. Why don't you just curse God and die, Job? That's from the wife of his youth. And then he had to put up with those guys talking to him on and on and on, day after day, week after week. He just had a simple lesson to learn, a very simple lesson. But his wealth was wiped out, his children were wiped out, everything gone. And then he had balls all over his body to the point he couldn't even sit. And that might have been the worst of it all. I mean, how do you mourn the loss of children when your whole body is broken out with boils and you cannot get comfortable no matter what you do? And you cry out to God and say, what's wrong? Why is this happening to me? Now, we have some aches and pains among ourselves. And as we get older, it seems we have more and more aches and pains among ourselves. But we've got nothing like happened to him. And he took it very, very patiently. Can you imagine taking those things patiently without at some point saying, what are you doing to me, God? What's wrong with you? Can't you see? I've I've obeyed you all my life. I'm trying to do it your way. And get a little exasperated with him? Job never did. So James uses him as an example here. You've seen the end with Job. The boils went away. The friends went away. The wife straightened up. He had more children. He never did get those children that died back, did he? Sometimes lessons come painfully. And sometimes the results of those lessons stay with us for the rest of our lives. And the result does not go away. I mean, the whatever God had to do to us to put us through, to get us where he wanted us, does not go away always. Sometimes we live with our mistakes. We live with the punishments, perhaps, that he has put upon us. In an emotional sense, the rest of our lives. Therefore, it's better not to make mistakes. Therefore, it's better to learn the lessons early rather than having to learn the hard way. But we've seen the end of the eternal, that he is very pitiful, or pity, full of pity, and of tender mercy. So he showed tender merciness to Job in the long run once Job simply got the point. Why is it so hard for us to get the point at times? It's so easy for us to sit and listen to someone speak in a sermon that we can think of all kinds of people that applies to except we have trouble applying it to me. Why is it we have so much trouble seeing our problem? Why is it so easy to see other people's problems so clearly? I know what's wrong with so-and-so. But it's so hard to see our own because we are so deceitful and desperately wicked by nature. The carnal mind is enmity against God. And it just does not want to see what's wrong with itself. It wants to see what's wrong with something, someone else. And therefore, by comparison, 
it feels better or we feel better that's why it's not wise to compare ourselves among ourselves alright let's go to 1 Peter 3 1 Peter 3 and here let's see what do I want about uh, verse so here he's, he's speaking of the time when uh, Noah was building the ark this is, this is the point I wanted to get out of this verse 20 which sometime were disobedient speaking of uh, wicked spirits but when, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing wherein few that is eight souls were saved by water imagine the patience of God there Noah didn't have a shipyard and he didn't have lots of employees it took him 120 years to fulfill God's instruction well now where is God in all this man has sinned so egregiously upon the earth that God said I'm sorry I ever made them I'm sorry I ever created man I will blot them out now let's use a simple analogy of a cockroach in your kitchen he's on the counter you come in and you turn on the lights and maybe there's cockroaches scurry every direction I've experienced that in Florida rented a house well this is a pretty nice house went in at night turned on the light and cockroaches ran everywhere well I had a an immediate feeling of loathing because of the dirty unscrupulous and scurrilous things that those cockroaches do scurrying about my kitchen in the night so my immediate reaction was to grab a fly swatter and kill as many immediately as I possibly could before they all got under something and hid. Now man, mankind became a cockroach in God's eyes. They were so evil he couldn't stand them nor abide them. And he says, I wish I had never created them. Oh, look at them down there. They're awful. Every thought is vanity and pride and evil and sin. I'm going to blot them out. And then he patiently waited for 120 years. Now, I would have had trouble backing out of the kitchen and saying, I'll just leave the cockroaches, we'll get them next month. You know, or I'll wait 120 years and then kill them. Now, when, when you reach that point of loathing and anger, you're ready to do something, aren't you? You're ready to act. Have you ever been angry in your life and you wanted to do something about it now? Usually when we're angry, we want to pick something up and do something about it, whatever it is. We don't want to say, well, that's okay, I'll, I'll just be patient. Your dog dug up my lawn. We'll talk about that next month. <laughs> but it's not the way we react normally, is it? Well, look at the patience of God there, where he sat back and just said, all right, I'll just wait for 120 years. Fortunately, a day is, is a year to him. Still had to wait 120 days any way you want to slice it. Pretty patient. And then he floated those eight people off, and he knew, he knew even as it happened, that the seeds of paganism would come through Noah's sons and daughters-in-law. And Babel followed not long thereafter. 
And there he had a chance at Babel to blot them all out again. Instead, he just confounded their languages and said, well, we're going to go ahead with this 7,000-year plan, now 8,000 years. We're going to go ahead and go through with this thing. And he's been patiently waiting ever since for a few to become the first fruits of the Lamb and the Bride of Christ and then build a family. So we've seen a lot of families go bad on the earth and throughout history, and we've seen a lot of dysfunction among families in the world and our own families, and now we've seen incredible dysfunction in the family of God, those whom we called out under Herbert Armstrong. And God is patiently enduring all of this as well, even though he's spewing us and is very angry and has turned his face from us because of our unrighteousness. Yet still in all, he hasn't blotted us out. We still have a chance, you and I. And Peter goes on to explain that. <clears throat> he talked about the patience of God in verse 20. And then he says, verse 21, the like figure are the same thing wherein to even baptism does also now save us not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, just putting sin out alone is not enough. We also have to have a clean and clear conscience in Christ because just getting rid of the sin doesn't give us eternal life. That has to come as a free gift as a result of him judging us worthy of it as a result of our obedience and what Christ did to make it possible. So he's gone into heaven now in verse 22 and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Hasn't really happened yet, but it's, it's happening. It's in the process. And it, the process is going to speed up a great deal. But he's showing a great deal of restraint right now. He could blot us out again, but he's, he's waiting until the appointed time. My mother used to make me sit on a stool in the kitchen when I'd done evil. Seems like I nearly wore that thing out. I don't remember any paint being left on it. But she'd set the timer on the oven. I had to sit right there on that. I couldn't go play. I couldn't do anything. Couldn't talk. I just had to sit there on that stool. Sort of a dunce's stool, I guess, in a way. And I had to wait until that timer dinged on the stove and if she said it for 10 minutes 15 minutes, half hour, whatever it was man that was tough to sit there and just watch that thing nothing else to do but watch that thing and think about my sin it was easier to choose not to think about the sin but to watch the timer but I don't remember patience being a great part of that I was very impatient I had to wait I couldn't get up but that didn't mean I was patient patience is an attitude you know you can wait for someone isn't that doesn't that bother you if someone's 30 minutes late you know you had an appointment you're supposed to be there at 2 o'clock and it's 10 after it's 15 after it's 30 minutes after whatever you know preachers have talked too long whatever it might be you know, the appointed hour comes and on and on it goes, or the appointed hour comes and they're not there. <coughs> Ten minutes? Yeah, you can forgive that. You know, they could have been tied up in traffic. Maybe. After 15 minutes, though, 
You might wait if it's really important, but you don't wait patiently. Very impatient. See, it's, it's, a, it's an attitude of mind. Why is it? I can sit fairly patiently in the woods waiting for a deer to come tripping by. And I'm not sitting there in a stew because that deer is not necessarily on an appointment with me. He comes when he wants to. And if you're going to be one who hunts, then you have to wait patiently. If you get impatient, you begin pacing around and saying loud words, uh, they don't come ever. So you have to learn patience if you have a particular goal. And we have a goal of the kingdom of God. There is an appointed time that the son did not know. Maybe he knows by now. I don't know the day or the hour. He may not even know yet. I guess he's being pretty patient with the father, isn't he? Son, I'm going to send you back. When, Dad? You'll know. I'll tell you. <laughs> he's been waiting thousands of years now. Maybe he still doesn't know the day or the hour. Something the father's keeping to himself. I don't know. But God waited for 120 years, even though he was very, very frustrated and angry with mankind. None of us have waited 120 years for the kingdom of God. I think that's safe to say, isn't it? There's a couple of you marginal, maybe. But... All right, let's go to Romans 9. Romans 9. Verse 22. Here he's talking about the potter and the clay and vessels of honor and dishonor and so on. Verse 22, he says, What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured much long-suffering or patience the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Same type of thing I was just talking about there with Noah. I mean, there, there are people who simply are vessels of destruction. And God has the power, he has the might to simply obliterate, to wipe out. But he's waiting patiently because he has a plan. He's going to work it out. Are we not fortunate in that sense that God has a plan for you and I as individuals? Or you and me, excuse me, as individuals. And he's patiently working it out. And we don't always give him a lot of cooperation, do we? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he has afore prepared to glory. Even us, whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, willing to graft Gentiles in, not just Israel. But he's patiently working on a plan that now not only includes Israel, but includes Gentiles as well, who were not those first called, but have been called afterward. We have the incredible patience of God on our side, just as Noah did, just as Abraham did, just as Moses did. I haven't gone into the story of Israel coming out of Egypt and the incredible mercy he showed on them. Just, just think about that for a moment. I, I know we've considered it before, but you've been slaves now for 430 years. You're 
your lives have been misery. And here lately, you've had to bake just as many bricks and with less straw and worse working conditions. The union wasn't helping you in the least. And now God says, all right, I'll deliver you. And then you see a few plagues come and you have a few fleas in your bed or frogs or whatever it was. There was a separation made at a certain point, but they went through the first three or four to get the point that, you know, things are not too good here and they're getting worse. But now God suddenly makes a difference. Now, he's allowing us to go through a certain amount of trials, trouble, and tribulation on this earth until the point comes where he's going to make a difference for you and me if we're faithful. And the contrast will be wonderful. See? The contrast is the key there. That God shows his patience and mercy suddenly after putting us through a lot of trial, trouble, and tribulation. And he says, through much tribulation enter the kingdom. But if you're patient, you will receive, like the husbandman waiting for the harvest. So then he begins to leave it all on the Egyptians and he sorts his people out of it. And then he gives them everything they might want from Egypt, opens the Red Sea so they can walk through on dry ground with water standing up on either side, does the same thing at the River Jordan, water heaped up behind, and you walk through. And you think, boy, what an incredible, patient, merciful God. He led us through that slavery and he's answering all his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob in us. And here we have this glorious opportunity, and God is on our side. Look at that water, and we just walk through it. I'm thirsty. God, you brought us out here to die. The only thing we can conclude. <laughs> you know what your reaction have been about, about then? The price water. God said, all right, will they ever learn? And he gave them water. And he gave them manna. And then that wasn't good enough. And he gave them more quail where they could stuff down their throats. And he patiently put up with that murmuring and griping and complaining for 40 years till they all grew old and died or died of plagues because of whatever sin. And then he took the younger generation into the land. That, that is an incredible story of patience to me and how he was dealing with his people. And we're the recipients of that same attitude. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's just as patient now as he was then. The only thing he's waiting for is us to trust him with everything in our lives and our lives. That's all he's waiting for. Just like Abraham. Why do we have Hebrews 11 in there? Because those people were faithful. And they did trust him unto death. But we have problems trusting God, don't we? With our health, with our wealth, whatever you want to name, we have trouble trusting God with it. We're afraid to turn loose and trust God. We get all worried about things that concern us. Why do we worry? He said would trust him not one hair of her head would be lost or harmed they might kill you but you'll live tomorrow and forever but we don't believe him do we brethren 
We can't turn loose and say, God, I trust my life to you. I don't care. I know I'll live forever. So why can't I trust you with my life? Why can't I do this? Well, we have trouble with it. We go to the sorcerers and the magicians of this world and we try to get another month added. Another day, another month, another year, whatever it is. We just have to hang on to this life. It's a matter of trust, isn't it? Isn't that what it really boils down to? Do we trust him with our life or do we not? And unfortunately, most of the time we don't. They didn't trust God with their lives. As soon as they got thirsty, the grumbling started. Now, had they trusted him, they would have known, wouldn't they, that he would provide water for them? They would have known that. They'd have said, well, we need water. Why don't we pray? And if they trusted him, he would. Have, he didn't take them out there to die. He took them out. He took them out there to feed them. He took them out there to water them. He took them out there to lead them to a land floor with milk and honey. But at the first sign of adversity, they just simply wouldn't believe it. Then he patiently worked with them, year after year, day, day after day, and year after year, for forty years, trying to get their attitudes right. Romans 2. Romans 2, verse 4. Let's go to verse... ...commit such things. And think you this, O man, that judge them which do such things, and do the same... And whatever we accuse people of, basically we do ourselves, don't we? In some form or another. Mr. Armstrong always said that if you point your finger at somebody else, there's always three pointed back at you. And some of the things we get the most irate about with others are things that in some form we are doing ourselves. And one of the reasons we loathe it in them is that somewhere secret, in the secret passages of our mind, we loathe it in ourselves. And think you this, O man, and judge them which do such things, and do the same, that you shall escape the judgment of God, or despise you the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering or patience, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. All the things that happen to us in our lives lead us where? To repentance of our own faults and problems and sins. That is the reason we have the trials, troubles, and difficulties we have. It's because we still sin. And those are a matter of cause and effect. God says, I'm going to bring this effect if you give me such and such a cause. And there it is. Now, some of the things go back to three and four generations with our degenerate physical selves. But a lot of it is of our own making. A lot of the reason we're sick today doesn't go back three or four generations. Do you realize that? Most of the diseases and afflictions we have came as a result of what has been going on for the last 50 to 75 years. A hundred years ago, they didn't put 
much chemical in your food. hundred years ago, they didn't use hormones in your sheep and your cattle. They didn't feed antibiotics to your chickens. You didn't get it in your eggs. And they didn't put artificial coloring and various things in your food. And we exercised as we worked. And now we sit in a chair and about the only exercise we get is leading toward corporal uh, tunnel syndrome. See, most of this is a result of our lifestyle and the way we live and what mankind has done to us. Most of the diseases we're suffering from now, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, were almost unknown by comparison a hundred years ago. I mean, there's some of it around. But these things have increased incredibly in the last 50 to 60, 70 years when babies are born with brain tumors. You know, we are a sick, dying generation. There's a cause for it. We simply decided that there was a faster, better, more exciting way to live than watching the corn grow and digging it and cultivating it and so on. And as a result of all of our chemicals and our problems that we've created, we're a sick and dying nation and world. Yeah, there were diseases. God said, though, if we would obey him, we wouldn't get the diseases of Egypt. But now we have them. So we didn't patiently do things God's way. We impatiently decided we're the now generation and we want satisfaction and we want it now no matter how it comes. And we're suffering as a result. Do we despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering and go on with the way that we are? You know, that is despising him, isn't it? If we continue in the way that we are and not make the changes and get away from that which caused us to be the way we are today. We have to do some serious thinking about what we eat, how we live our lives in terms of sedentary or busy. There are a lot of things we're going to have to rethink, brethren, because we despise the goodness and patience of God and go on doing the things that we want to do that are clearly causing all kinds of problems. Now, how do you shake those bonds off? It doesn't come easy. It is an absolute challenge to go into a supermarket today and find anything to eat that hasn't been tampered with, messed up, destroyed, or made poisonous by the things that man has done. It is a challenge. Any supermarket you go in to find anything fit to eat. How do you shake that off? Where do you get something good to eat? Perhaps we need to think about that. This isn't a sermon about health and nutrition. I don't know where I got off. But it is all tied together. That God has been so patient and so merciful with us. And now he says, depart from Babylon. Get away from these things that are destroying you. And we need to be thinking hard about how to go about that. Isaiah 52 makes it very clear that we're to to sit up and quit being walked on and shake 
the bonds of Babylon off our neck. And don't depend upon his forbearance and patience forever because he expects us to act. He's being patient with us, isn't he? He's giving us time, giving us opportunity. But we better be acting. We better be thinking about these things lest God's patience end and we go into great tribulation because most of the church is going to go into it. And we are candidates for it too. All right, let's go back to Galatians and get back on the, the beam here. Galatians 5. Now let's go to verse... Ephesians won't work, will it? Uh, let's go to verse uh, 22. He's talked about the works of the flesh. We won't deal with that today. Maybe we'll deal with that a little bit more in the days of unleavened bread, where specifically we're supposed to be putting sin out. But let's be positive and go to verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and long-suffering or patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and moderation or temperance. Against such there is no law. You can have these things just as much as you want. There's no law against having as much of them as you possibly can contain in your mind and heart and body. And long-suffering is one of them. Love, joy, peace, mentioned forth. Patience. To be patient long with others. Now, you can't isolate these things and, and only have one because the fruit of God's Spirit, if you have God's Spirit dwelling in you and working, flowing through you to others, then his spirit produces all those fruits. But one of them that we fall short in so often is impatience with one another. It's so easy to get frustrated or irate or uncomfortable with each other. We're all in the likeness of God, and we all are subject to sin. We're all subject to weakness. We're all subject to problems and difficulties. Every last one of us. And I don't know where we get off as a pottle call Pot, the pot calling the <laughs> well, the pot calling the kettle black, but that's really what it amounts to. Be patient with one another. It is a fruit of God's spirit. It's not listed as a work of the flesh. Works of the flesh come easy, don't they? Have you ever noticed that? I, I never had any real problem sinning. It just comes so easy. Pride is a natural state. Humility and meekness have to be worked on. You have to chew. I mean, pride just happens, doesn't it? Somebody says something about you, what do you do? Do you swell up with meekness? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we swell up with pride. It's just bang. It's automatic. Just like that. You have to, you have to choose meekness. And you have to fight the swelling that starts and put it down conquer it and say I'm going to be meek meekness is not something God just pours in your head meekness is a choice you make all day long every day humility is a choice you make every day it is a choice against vanity pride and ego and how we dress how we walk how we act what we say how we say it we have a constant daily choice 
every time we confront or are confronted with a different situation as the day goes on, we have to make a choice. Uh, normally, people do not even address that. They don't realize that they have a choice to make. They just swell up with pride, vanity, and ego when they dress. They do it with pride, vanity, and ego. They have a certain way they want to look to the world. They have a certain way they want the world to perceive them. Some do it with physical things. Some do it with emotional and mental or academic things. We all have different flavors and varieties and brands of pride and ego. Some care a great deal about how they look. Others could care less. Some care a great deal about whether they have the right knowledge or not, and some could care less. And with knowledge often comes great pride and vanity and ego of the mind, just like it can of the body. And we have to consciously make a decision day by day, instance by instance, and instant by instant, of how we're going to react. You have to put on humility and meekness. And you have to put off pride and ego and vanity. It doesn't come easy. It's a moment-to-moment choice. And you and I have to be conscious of that day in and day out. How am I reacting? Am I reacting out of pride? Or am I reacting out of humility and meekness? Most of the time, if you're normal... You're reacting out of pride, vanity, and ego. That's why we get our feelings hurt. We call it our feelings. It's our pride. It's our vanity that's hurt. We call it our feelings. But we don't want to admit we have pride and vanity, so we call it feelings. You hurt my feelings. No, I hurt your ego. <laughs> See? And when we're mashed, we want to mash back. That's why we have problems. That's why if the tail bear shuts up, the stripe ceases, as the Proverbs tell us. What time is it getting to be? I guess we still have a bit here. Second Peter 1. Second Peter 1. We'll go back there, if you would. I'm going to get to the main body of this sermon here before it's over, if I hurry. Second Peter 1. He talks about some virtues here that we need to have. Verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness. These, these are all linked together. And to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So, we can say, well, I, you know, I, I serve God, I keep His commandments, I do the things I should do, but boy, I sure don't have any patience. sure need patience. I've heard a lot of people in my life say they were impatient. Impatient with others, perhaps impatient with God, impatient with themselves, impatient with conditions. I'm one that likes to get something done and move on to the next. Uh, and then on a physical level. But, you know, let's, let's, let's get this done and move on to something else. And my tendency then is if things don't go quite right and I can't get it done 
in the amount of time I had in mind in my head, I get frustrated because I wanted to get this done and out of the way. It's, it's, maybe it's a B or a C on my list, C. Get it out of the way. Get it done. Let's move on to something else. And then something breaks. <laughs> something doesn't work. I like things that work. Don't like things that don't work. God looked at the church and He said, It ain't working. I'll blow it apart. I'll see who will repent and who will just go back to the vomit of the world. And most are going back to that. But he's patiently waiting to sort it out and see what's happening here with us. Now, if I don't like things that are broken, do I think that God likes things that are broken? Uh, he, he made a perfect universe. He made things to work on this earth. What has happened down here? We've polluted it. We've misused it. We've abused it. We've gotten it to the point that it just simply barely functions anymore. And life is endangered both in nature and human life is endangered. Chronic wasting disease is spreading now. Uh, it was in the deer and the elk in northern Colorado, southern Wyoming, and barely into Nebraska. They thought they had it contained. Now they found it across the continental divide in western Colorado. They found it in Wisconsin. It's spreading among the white-tailed deer, and they mix a great deal. The nature itself is groaning for the return of Christ. It's broken. It's going to take him coming back to fix it all. We polluted it. We messed it up. It's our sins that have made this world what it is. But we cannot separate ourselves from patience. It's easy to be impatient with someone else who isn't perfect yet. But there's no one perfect but one. I have many, many imperfections. Now that Marla and I are going to be here with you day in and day out, you're going to see some of mine and some of hers. It's probably an illusion. They may it's just your imagination, probably, but you know. But you'll come to know us better as human beings. Now, are we going to dissolve and and so on? Because you see now that we aren't perfect. I'll tell you right now, we're not. I'm not by any means. You've had trouble to some degree here living with each other. Now you have to live with us. You think you've had it bad before. Now see what happens. <laughs> but it's just like when we first came into the church, we were first being converted. We thought, boy, now I've found the truth. Everybody is going to be perfect and everything's going to be just right. And then we woke up and realized these people stink just like I do. They've been converted for 10, 20, 30 years. What's wrong with them? And we were somewhat disillusioned, most of us, at some point. I remember going to this fellow here today that I went to college with. I guess for a year we overlapped, or I uh, hadn't seen Dick here in probably, what, roughly 35 years. I don't know what changed him so much. <laughs> <laughs> He's an old man. <laughs> but we 
went to college thinking, this is God's college. Everything here ought to be perfect. And found out, you know, you're probably about the only perfect one there. I know I was. <laughs> but we have to deal with the fact we all have warts. And uh, this is a lesson that doesn't just get learned once, does it? I mean, I think we're going through, to some degree or another, a reconversion here. We're coming to see that the way we weren't doing things, that we were doing things, was not the way God intended it. And we're having to reconsider, retrench, redo our whole emotional uh, and knowledge structure to one degree or another. Because we simply were missing the lessons that the book here has for us to learn. I've been in the church, boy, I'm on my 50th year, I guess now. I ought to have temperance and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness and love by now, shouldn't I? <laughs> but I'm finding I'm having to retrench and rethink, regroup, go to God and say, I didn't do it the way you wanted all this time. I have to repent. I didn't treat the church the way the church ought to be treated. I wasn't the kind of minister it talks about at the end of Ezekiel 34. I was more like the one they talked about at the beginning of Ezekiel 34. Muddied the waters. The ministry has an awful lot of repenting to do. We thought we were God's chosen, but we weren't doing things right. And the people got abused, misused, and taken advantage of. That's got to all be rethought. It's got to all be redone. Christ wants pastors of his own heart who will gently lead and rock the lambs in their arms. That's what he's looking for. The ministry everywhere has some rethinking to do. You don't have to be in a Church of God group very long till you start hearing stories about all the misuses and abuses. That's one of the favorite themes of the church today, isn't it? Well, I call on me and the ministry everywhere to change that, to do it differently, to be loving and gentle and kind and patient with God's people. Instead of saying, oh, you're a sinner, out. There's a large organization today. If you disagree on anything, basically, you're out. I won't name names. But where is the loving kindness and gentleness and patience and helping the lambs to get rid of the disagreements or to get rid of the sin as opposed to just dumping them out if they disagree with something? Can we be so foolish as to think that one man can have all knowledge and be everything he ought to be and if you disagree with him in any way that you're gone how could we be so naive as to think that even Paul said follow me as I follow Christ he knew he had sins and faults and problems and he said even late in his life after he had been an apostle for years the things he wanted to do he didn't do and the things he didn't want to do he did was he lying no. He faced that possibility every day that he wouldn't do the things he ought to do 
or would do something he shouldn't do. Did Herbert Armstrong have all knowledge of everything? No way. He gave us the truth, basically, yes. But he didn't know it all, and he didn't do it all. So there's some people who just throw him away as a result of that. And there are others who think that he knew all and was all, and he couldn't have said anything wrong ever. Two ditches, two extremes. He was a man of God, whom God revealed the truth to you and I too. We're the only people on earth who understand why we exist. That is incredible, isn't it? The 99.999 into infinity of the people on this earth have no idea why they're even on the earth. And we understand the mystery of the ages. No, he wasn't perfect. He made mistakes. And he had some things wrong. And as we see them proved in the Bible, we'll change them. But God has been very patient. Was very patient with him. But so many people today in the Church of God are not patient with Herbert Armstrong at this point. They somehow feel that they are part of the truth. I mean, they've got different ideas and beliefs and so on, but they still identify themselves somehow with Herbert Armstrong's building. But they deny the man that built it. Does this make some kind of sense? I don't understand it. We've got our understanding of what we have, but then simply because he didn't believe this, this, or this, and we're smarter and we understand it better now, we throw him away. But why can't we just recognize, well, that was something he was wrong about. He was right about this, this, this. He was wrong about this. Love and respect him for what God did do through it, and then change what was wrong. It's that simple. But we seem to have trouble finding a balance on that. So we have people who worship the ground he walked on, and if Herbert Armstrong didn't say it, it can't be true. you got that kind, and then you have those who have completely trashed him. And somewhere in the middle is a man God used to call a lot of people. And now God is choosing out of those the ones that he will have as first fruits, patiently sifting and sorting through our lives. And if we will be adding these things that Peter talks about, we'll be chosen. And one of them, since the subject of the day is patience, is patience. With God, that we don't get upset with him, because how long, O oh Lord, is Habakkuk fought through, or impatient with one another. We're here to become family, brethren. We're here to learn to have infinite patience and long-suffering with one another. Loving each other with our whole hearts. Getting to know each other so we can love one another. And how do you love someone you don't know? We have trouble loving God whom we don't know. And we have trouble loving mankind whom he created in his image. And we need to know one another. We need to take time to get acquainted with one another instead of finding, oh, oh, so-and-so has this, 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 and problem. I don't have time for it. No. Spend time with them. Get to know them. Get to love them. And if you love them, and you know them, and you care about them, 
then you'll tend to have more patience with them. So it's easy to dismiss someone that we simply don't know that well and cast them aside. Um, they had problems in the New Testament administration, and I'm thinking of Ephesians 4 at the moment. What did Paul and the apostles face? There were thousands converted in Pentecost, or at Pentecost, after Christ ascended to his Father in heaven. 3,000 a day, 5,000 in a day, if my memory serves me. These were people who came out of paganism, out of the world, but they saw a Messiah. They saw a truth. They didn't know a lot of doctrine at that point. They had to learn it, and it had to be patiently taught to them over a period of time. But they accepted Christ's sacrifice, and they accepted the apostles. And then those apostles went out to various areas and preached to different people who were worshiping Diana and various other gods, Semiramis. I mean, it goes all the way back. And they had to bring them out of that paganism. And it was not an easy thing to do. And their job was to take all these people of different races, different cultures, different backgrounds, different understanding, different religions, and blend them into a loving family. That was the challenge they faced. And I'll tell you, it was not an easy challenge. And Paul talks about it a lot. I therefore, Ephesians 4, the prisoner of the eternal, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called. This is a way of life. It's a vocation. We speak of a vocation. What's your vocation? And people speak of their life's work. I'm a carpenter. I'm a plumber. I'm a stockbroker. Whatever it might be. Our vocation, our life's work, is becoming like God the Father in Jesus Christ. That is our job. Now, we work at being a carpenter or a plumber or whatever in order to put food in our mouth. But our overall purpose in life is to be a carpenter like Christ would be a carpenter, be a plumber like he would have been a plumber, to treat people in plumbing the way he would have treated people in plumbing. It's all a matter of character. It's a matter of taking these physical things and applying how God thinks and acts to them. So our, we might be a carpenter or a plumber, but that's not what we really are. We're a Christian. And therefore, we plumb or carpenter in a certain fashion. That is our real vocation. So he says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with patience. So meekness and humility are linked here with patience. If we are proud and vain and egotistical, we are not patient. Because if people rub our vanity or our ego the wrong way, we become angry and impatient very rapidly. So the mental attitude that we go through life with has to be one of loneliness. That, that is a strange thought to a human mind. What are we taught in the society? We're taught to be all you can be. We're taught you deserve this, this, and this. 
That's what the commercials tell us. You deserve a break today. You deserve a new car. You deserve a fine home. Why? Because you are wonderful. They build the ego up. We want to build self-esteem. He says to esteem ourselves as lowly. But we talk about we need to have high self-esteem. No, we don't. They're lying to us. They're teaching us the way of pride, vanity, and arrogance. It's pretty raw in a bar. Say something about somebody's mother there and see what happens to you. They've got pride and mama. (laughs) You know, whatever, in the bar. But it's through life. It's through every facet of life. It's there in business. You have to be careful to be a politician. To stroke everyone's ego. That's what makes politicians so despicable to us who are trying to get rid of politics in our minds. Is because they're, they'll tell this one this lie and stroke him and then they'll lie to this one tell him how wonderful he is and everybody's wonderful. Look at the world today. Is everyone wonderful? That's what the politicians are telling you. They'll tell you you are if you get in contact with them. Do you know that? They'll do, they have different thing, ways of remembering your name because they want to stroke your ego. And if they see you five years later, they'll want to say, Hi, Bill. Because they know that'll stroke your ego and get them a vote. They could care less about you. They want your vote. That's all they're after. Do they remember your name as Bill because they loved you? And they remembered you because what a fine fellow you really are? And therefore they couldn't forget Bill? No. They go through that process to learn your name so that you will be stroked when they remember your name and you'll vote for them. It's all self and ego. And people don't want put down in this world, do they? We don't like to be dissed, as they say. Maybe that's passe by now. There are probably other, some, some more was put down back when I was still a young man. And then, then the teenagers use you, diss them. What is it today? Is that one still working? Nobody here young enough to tell me. (laughs) The church is getting old. If Christ doesn't come soon, we all die, and there'll be none who are alive and remain. It'll all be resurrection. (laughs) Let's go on. With all lowliness and meekness, verse 2, with patience, forbearing one another in love. Forbearance, uh, suffering long, being patient, all pretty much synonyms. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, there's our goal. To keep the unity of the Spirit of God. What has happened in the church recently? All blown to pieces. Very little unity. Why? Because not much of the Spirit of God remains, unfortunately. It is the spirit in man that causes division. The carnal, natural, human mind that wants to be right, and if somebody doesn't agree with us, then obviously they're wrong, and we shouldn't have dinner with them. And therefore, we separate, and divide, and part, 
because we can't get along and agree. God said it would be that way. What did we like? We liked the Spirit of God that leads to unity and the bond of peace. That's what we liked. That's what the church still lacks. Now, you and I have a golden opportunity here, brethren. This is a basically new group that has never been together before. Yes, we've been in the church 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But we've seen the church blown apart by God for sin and Laodiceanism. And we were Laodiceans ourselves. They all slumbered and slept. Not just some, but all. So we're not the Philadelphians and the problem is out there with those Laodiceans. We were the Laodiceans too. And now we have been drawn together here and we have a golden opportunity to succeed. A chance to rectify the wrongs that caused the church to be blown apart. We have a chance to get to know and love one another and become unified in the bond of peace. The Ephesian church had been there a while and they had not accomplished this. So Paul wrote to them in love and told them, reminded them, that you have a vocation here, people. You have an opportunity. There is one body one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. They said, you all have the Spirit of God. Now, what's the problem here? But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He didn't want us to fight. He goes on and talks about offices and so on. He doesn't want us to fight over those things. And I think for the most part, we're not doing that here. I think we've been through the, the deacon thing and the elder thing and who gets promoted thing and suffered with those things in the church long enough that hopefully we won't have to go through that one again, will we? But maybe we can move on to bigger and better things. But we are called here together to be one body, one mind, one spirit, one family. That's what God wants us to accomplish here. See, the church is basically blown apart and being destroyed, and it won't be long until it's gone. Worldwide is almost out the door now. Not much left of it. And the other organizations are coming apart for the most part as well. And here we have come together. We're not big. We're not important necessarily. We're only important as we become meek and humble and righteous. That is the only importance we can have because we're weak and base by nature. And we're vain, egotistical, and proud by nature. But we're called here with a vocation. And that vocation is to be bound together in the unity of the Spirit and peace and love and patience with one another. And if we're going to become one, it requires that fruit of the Spirit, patience. But we are willing to suffer with one another. And if one member hurt, they all hurt. One part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. It's so easy and it's so human to say, that one's hurt and set it over here, let's all throw rocks at it. It is harder to say, oh, you're hurting. How can I help? What can I do? How can I strengthen you? How can I upraise the weak? But we have to be careful in judging that that one is weak and we are strong. Here's another pitfall that comes along. 
I need to help you, brother, because you are weak. <laughs> See, then, then there's judgmental. The, the, the spirit of a wrong kind of condemnation or judgment comes in. We have to be so careful and so kind and so gentle because those are the fruits of God's Spirit. And very, very carefully, very meekly, very patiently help the moat out of their eye once we get the beam out of our own. But it's so easy to push aside the beam and say, oh, I see you have moat. And be impatient with one another because they are in the moat forgetting that we have a beam in our own. So all I'm talking about today is one of the fruits of God's Spirit is patience and how we need to gently and lovingly, patiently live with one another and learn to love one another and become fast friends. I don't mean quickly become friends. I mean strong friends. You can become friends quickly too. But you know, I've noticed over the years that people will come around and they'll they'll pat you on the back. I'm your friend forever, they'll say right after they meet you. They don't even know you. But because they like something about you or agreed with them on one or two or three or five things, they're fast friends forever. And I've noticed that those go away pretty quickly. Because it isn't long before you disagree on something and suddenly they got another friend somewhere else. Because people are not meek and humble by nature. And they're looking for someone who agrees with them and if you don't agree with them then suddenly your friend forever is forever gone. So let's not become fast friends in that sense. Let's in time work at getting to know one another getting to love one another and learn to have sympathy and patience and loving kindness toward one another because that's what we're here for and I think that's a good place to shut it down uh, with that thought